listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 17th of October. And on the programme this morning, we picked and chose our way through some of the best stories coming out of the Jitex tech conference, including news of a brand new racing league for self-driving cars in Abu Dhabi and how Dubai's Roads and Transports Authority is planning to introduce facial recognition technology on the metro. Meanwhile, as the globe marks World Food Day, we took a look at the surprisingly fast-developing agriculture industry in the UAE. Flowers, honey and figs are just some of the new products being grown in the Emirates. We spoke to three farmers in total. Plus, cricket is being added to the Olympics in 2028 for the very first time since 1900. But what other sports should be included? We heard from Robbie Greenfield, we heard from Chris McCarty, and we heard from cricketing expert Mark Archer. Meanwhile, everyone seems to be feeling sick at the moment, but intriguingly, no one is talking about COVID anymore. I asked an expert in infectious diseases where the flu is now more of a concern than COVID. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yeah, welcome back to The Agenda. And we are speaking about Jitex now, actually, because another big tech announcement uh, came out of the conference uh, and really caught our attention. And that is the news that Abu Dhabi is launching what it is calling the world's biggest racing league for self-driving cars. Now, apparently the vehicles are going to be powered by artificial intelligence. And the aim of the race is to promote driverless technology, which I suppose in many ways make sense because the Formula One, I suppose, leads to innovations and advances in sort of motorsports. So if you had a self-driving league, then maybe you'd have the same sort of reality. Anyway, it's going to be called the Abu Dhabi Autonomous Racing League, and it's going to be held on April the 28th next year at the Yaz Marina Circuit. Running it is the UAE Capital's Advanced Technology Research Council. And joining me to tell us more about the event is Thomas McCarthy. Now, he is the executive director of the program development arm of that council, which is called Aspire. Thomas, I can see you on uh, Teams. I can see you on video. It looks like you're at Jitex now. How are you doing? Hi, how are you this morning? Yes, I'm here at Jitex. Apologies for all the background noise. I think if you see in the background, you might just be able to see our uh, our car that we uh, unveiled yesterday here at the uh, at Jitex. So uh, very happy to be here, getting a load of attention. Yeah. Thank you for having us on today. Oh my goodness, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And and don't worry that you're you're cutting through just fine. I can hear some noise in the background, but not too much. You are coming through on the radio, nice and clear. And yeah, if you um, we'll we'll definitely get that video up on our social media so people can see the car in the background. Tell me a little bit more about this race, though. How many cars are you expecting to join it, and and how will it, you know, how will it take part? Okay, so we're going to have ten teams from all over the world from uh, North America, from Europe, uh, from Singapore, from China, and from uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, So the 10 teams will uh, appear on the uh, Yas Marina circuit track, as with any other motorsport. The only difference is there won't be a driver in the car. Instead, there's going to be a computer sitting on top of a stack 
of sensors and cameras and LiDAR and radar. And all of that information from the cameras and radar and uh, sensors will be fed into the computer. And then the teams have to, to do the software, do the coding that will enable the computer to take account of all of the data and all of the details of the track and race the car effectively and efficiently around the track and against each other. So there is no central control. It's all on the car. So in a normal F1 car, you're going to have the driver using his or her racing skills, and you're going to have a team back in race control giving instructions. Here, all that data is in the computer, and the coders have to have a sophisticated enough algorithm to process all that information instantaneously and drive the car. So there's a drive-by-wire feature in the car, and there is all the perception feeding into the computer. So it's not remote control cars, though. Absolutely not. No. Okay. I just wanted to check, and because I'm I'm imagining, you know, that it's that artificial intelligence component which is making it so clever. You know, the car will be quotes thinking for itself, so to speak. Absolutely. Uh, Indeed, it will. Um, So that you know everything gets optimized, and the car actually learns as it goes along. It has. It will have historical data from having done practice runs on the track, but it will update that in real time and make the necessary adjustments in order to get around the track, in order to pass out other cars. I can imagine that these cars are going to be able to go quite a lot faster than human-driven cars, potentially, because there isn't the risk to human life, for example, and we've all been told that machines are more efficient and more effective than, than humans with our foibles and, you know, sore necks. Well, indeed, the only limit on the speed with which the cars go is the engine we put in them and how we tune the engine. The current car we have is a Dallara 23 car that's produced by the iconic uh, um, Italian manufacturer, Dallara, for originally for the Japan Race Promotion Series. We've taken that car and adapted it and put in the autonomous stack. Uh, the speeds on that car are designed to be almost as fast as the Formula One car, just a little bit slower. So the only other uh, car as fast as this racing is the Formula One car. That would be amazing. I mean, what's up for grabs? Is it just um, scientific glory or will there be money? There will be money. So the prize fund for this first race is 2.25 million US dollars uh, to be divided among the winners. So, yeah, it's a big incentive for them. But there is a sense that this is a a project for scientific research as well as a, a great watch. It is. I mean, it, we, we think about this as putting three things together, talent, technology, and extreme sports. But there's a purpose beyond just the great watch. The purpose is that we want to see the kind of technology enablement from autonomous systems in production cars sooner. Now, we're not talking about cars going around the place without drivers. We're talking about the cars that you and I drive every day. As of now, the cars that we drive can technically do more than we as drivers can accomplish. So imagine you're driving along a motorway and something like an accident occurs in front of you. Now, the car has the capacity to avoid that, but you may not have the capacity as a driver to steer the car to avoid that. By putting in autonomous systems to assist you, it'll be like a Formula One driver is sitting next to you to say, I've got your back or something really uh, serious and catastrophic happens, I'm here to help you and intervene. So it's about bringing the capability of the driver up. Um, Our idea is that if we can 
demonstrate the capacity of autonomous systems at extreme speeds. That's going to give people confidence to have these systems in their cars. At the moment, they don't have this confidence. For example, we hear a lot of people uh, when the, they find that lane assist is put in their cars, they get very nervous when lane assist starts jerking the steering wheel. And as a consequence, they turn it off. What we need to do is get the confidence of consumers that, gee, these autonomous systems will assist you and enhance your performance. And if that's the case, manufacturers will be more willing to invest and put them into our cars. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And I have to say, I am one of those people who my car, I've got, I've got a Tesla. It tells me to do well. It's very strict with me. Very strict indeed. If I get too close to other cars, it tells me off. If I try and go out of my lane, it gets furious beeps at me like it thinks I'm falling asleep. Um, so I can certainly see the motivation behind the race. And, and thank you so much for joining us on the line. I know it's very busy down at Jitex. I don't know how you've managed to find a quiet spot. Thank you very much indeed. Thomas McCarthy, Executive Director of Aspire. That is the programme development arm of the Advanced Technology Research Council in Abu Dhabi. I wish you the very best of luck over the next few days at Jitex. It's been a great pleasure having you join us on the agenda. And I look forward to that race on the 28th of April next year at Yaz Marina Circuit. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Yes, we are turning our attention now to some of the hot tech stories coming out of the Jitec Global Conference. Uh, and for those of you who new, newly moved to the country, Jitec basically slightly takes over the news agenda for one week of every year. And it's partly because of the size of the event, um, but also it's because all the government par- departments here get involved. Uh, so we get loads of cool sort of tech-focused announcements about all the innovations that they're making. And and one of those government organisations is Dubai's Roads and Transports Authority. And it's fair to say they've slightly knocked it out of the park this year. Uh, their stand is getting a lot of attention. Uh, there's a model of a 3D printed Abra on it. And joining me now live from that stand to talk to me about the slightly less visible innovations that they're making is Mohammed al Mudharab. He is the CEO of Corporate Technology Support Services for the RTA. Joining me on the phone. Mohammed, sir, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. How are you? How is Jitex? Good morning, Georgia, and thank you for hosting us today. It's well, a- actually, it's quite, it's quite busy, and I'm trying to find a quiet place to, to have this interview. It must be almost impossible. It's an absolute racket there most of the time. Literally thousands of people converging on the World Trade Center. Tell me, what is new for the RTA at Jitex? What are you exhibiting this year? So we have a collection of innovative and uh, smart solutions and services that we are presenting to the public in Jitex Global this year. Uh, mainly, we are uh, demonstrating the future of null card in public transportation systems. As you know, the null card is the, uh, the, the fair card being used in public transportation in Dubai. And today in Jitex, we are uh, presenting the future of this technology where people will be able to link their null profile with the facial recognition and they can visit the metro stations, for example, and use their facial recognition instead of their null cards to access the public transportation uh, in Dubai. Another initiative also we are presenting is the 3D printed Abra, the one that you have just mentioned, uh, Georgia. And uh, we got a lot of benefits uh, using this technology uh, we were able to reduce the production time from three months to one week. 
and also the cost was reduced by about 30%, maintaining durability, safety measures, and, and everything else. Fast. Uh, and then, yeah. Sorry, carry on. You were about to, to, to carry on. I interrupted yeah. you. Yeah. In terms of services, uh, Georgia, we are presenting two uh, important services which has a very high demand by the public. One of them is the transfer of car ownership. Now can ha- it can happen using Dubai Drive app along with UAE Pass, the digital identity in, 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 in UAE. So people can transfer the car ownership from an individual to another. We are also launching the possibility of transferring the ownership of car plate numbers from an individual to another. So we are opening up our services and those services are powered by UAE Pass where we actually authenticate the actual owner of the vehicle and the plate number. That sounds uh, very sort of streamlined and and that is one of the sort of biggest things I think when everyone's selling a, when anyone's sort of selling a car or transferring ownership uh, it can involve an awful lot of paperwork so I'm sure that that innovation is going to help thousands of people you know save thousands of people lots of time tell me a little bit I mean the big overarching theme at Jitex at the moment is artificial intelligence lots of people talking about the metaverse as well how are you uh, trying to wrap those into the RTA's services uh, Georgia, the metaverse and AI are reshaping the way digital services are provided to customers. AI enables services, service providers to provide highly personalized experiences for their customers by understanding their behavior and tailoring their services to suit their needs. And I'll give you an example. How do we do that? We are launching as part of Jitex our revamp RTA Dubai app, where we have included one of the uh, nice features and to the parking facility that is available for the public in Dubai. Now we provide parking predictions. So, Georgia, if you are going somewhere in Dubai and you would like to have a look what's the availability, the real-time availability of a parking place in that particular area, you will have a full visibility of that. This is wow. having this is having an AI built in as part of our services and, uh, and offerings. So how would I access that on the RTA's app or website? Uh, within 24 hours, you will be receiving an update on your RTA Dubai app. If you download it, you will have a new look and feel of the RTA Dubai app. It is our revamped app. So the new service that I just talked about is bundled as part of the new update. Now, I know that many of the innovations that you're introducing at the RTA are sort of key components of your digital transformation strategy, which is something that all uh, sort of government departments in Dubai are required to have. What have we got to look forward to in the future? RTA is a technology-driven organization which leverages on cutting-edge solutions to provide seamless and sustainable mobility. From delivering mega-projects, uh, which is driven purely by, by technology, we have just concluded our revamp digital transformation program, which consists of 86 different projects that, is, that, that spans across six different pillars. We have just launched it, which, which have a clear vision to provide 100% data-driven mobility solution powered by scalable and agile technologies by 2030. So customers will leverage a lot of AI-driven uh, data and AI-driven services in the, in the near future. As an example, the parking is one of them, which we have launched today. And uh, soon after, there will be many more services that leverages 
Uh, the fourth industrial revolution technology. Fantastic to hear from you, sir. Thank you so much for taking time out at Jitex. I know it's an incredibly busy week and somehow you found the only quiet spot in the whole of that conference. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the line here on the agenda. Mohammed Al-Mudharab, he is the CEO of Corporate Technology Support Services for Dubai's Roads and Transports Authority. Thank you very much indeed, sir, for your time. Welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us. And while tech might be dominating the news headlines this week with Jitex going on at Dubai World Trade Center, we are determined here on the agenda to mix things up a little bit. Uh, so when I discovered that it was World Food Day this week, I decided it was the perfect opportunity for us to developing the fast developing world of farming here in the UAE. And, you know, for a desert country, there is a surprising amount of agriculture going on here. And that is thanks to a big government push to improve uh, both the country's future food security. And of course, you know, with COP28 coming up and the focus on sustainability, every time you buy something that's grown here, you are reducing the food miles that it takes to bring food into the country. So we wanted to look at uh, the growing sort of world of farming. Uh, And we got two brand new farmers, well, at least brand new to the region on the radio. They're both expats. Um, We spoke to Marianne Dehan, who is the founder of Marianne's Fresh Produce, and also James Salome. Now, he is beekeeping manager at Al Tabor Farms. That is for Al Maya Group in Fajera. And actually, I began with James and I asked him what led him to start farming in the UAE. I came from Brazil and I have uh, 40, 40 years of a beekeeping experience in my life. A few weeks ago, we were giving a conference of the International Apicultural Congress in Chile, the most important event about the bees and honey in the world. And I was giving a conference about the sustainability in beekeeping for honey production in arid zones. And after the, the, the conference, the people that were, were there attended the conference didn't believe that we were be able to produce honey in UAE. One guy said to me, I do not believe you are working under harsh conditions and arid climates. And you showed to us uh, handling the bees, handling hives and producing honey. And I told him, this was my first and same impression when I put my foot here in 2019. I didn't believe that it was possible for produce honey in UAE. But after four years, I am understanding that is possible. And what happened in this land is a miracle. We are working under arid climate. It's the most important factors that are disturbing the agriculture and livestock and honey production as well is the climate. Too much heat and a little bit of water. This is a big challenge for all producers, all farmers, all beekeepers 
all people that work in the primary sector for producing from the land, from the, the animals. James, I'm going to pause you there because I want to sort of anticipate how you manage to overcome these arid conditions. But I'm going to make everyone wait to find out how you overcame those arid okay. conditions. Because okay. I'm just going to talk to Marianne very quickly uh, because she's another farmer who's who's joined us on the line uh, now. Mm-hmm. And Marianne, tell me what you grow and, and, and what led you to start farming in the UAE? Yeah, so my story, I recognize some of the things you said that when you first moved here to the country, you were amazed by everything from the whole world being in the supermarket, but very little from here in the UAE. So, um, and I'm from the Netherlands, so close to where you are. We also have like a lot of produce from our own country traditionally in our supermarkets. So that led me to go like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, there obviously there is a very challenging climate here. Um, but the, I had been keeping an eye on the developments in, in agriculture, and I figured there must be something we can do to produce more locally um, and reduce those food miles, as you said. Um, so that sort of triggered my curiosity. And then um, after visiting a few farms in Egypt when I was there for a wedding, um, learned about things like hydroponics, aquaponics, and indoor farming developments that were going on in the world. I thought, oh, that's something that actually makes sense in this harsh UAE climate, um, as James was talking about as well. Uh, So that was about six years ago now. And um, I I really wanted to move into this field of sustainable agriculture. And I thought, oh, maybe there's a project I can join. I think some things were starting up around that time, but there was nothing I I could find at that time that really focused mainly on sustainability, which was really my drive to get into farming uh, here in the UAE. Um, And from there, I went uh, to talking to a few chefs, finding out, okay, uh, because they are like the connoisseurs of the food <laughs> industry, you know, like, okay, what mm-hmm. are things that are difficult for you to get, maybe things you would like to have, etc. And then I learned about things like edible flowers and micro th- uh, greens, which they use, a lot of chefs use, but are, are difficult to bring in because they're very delicate products, right? So, um, a, you know, you can think of a cucumber or a tomato is quite sturdy, but a flower, imagine once it's harvested, it's quite delicate. So I'm sorry, I didn't even say that. But yeah, so we grow edible flowers and microgreens um, because these are delicate products and they tra- don't travel very well. And it's also something I can focus on as a small farmer because uh, it's really a niche market we work in together with all these chefs here in the industry. And I always say it's a very wonderful thing to grow as well, because imagine opening your farm and stepping in and being surrounded by all these beautiful flowers and smells. Um, so it's a very happy place to work as well. A very beautiful, happy place. Now, Marianne, I'm going to come back to you in a minute to find out how on earth you are growing these very delicate, very beautiful flowers and, and microgreens. I'm going to go back to James and, and get him to reveal how on earth you managed to figure out how to do beekeeping in such an arid climate. How, how did you do it, James? In each day of the year, we have a challenge. We are trying to understand how to proceed in arid climate. And after this international congress in Chile, we knew that we are very special people that are handling for production, for flowers, as Marianne uh, do it, the livestock, the agriculture and the beekeeping as well. We are very special to working under conditions 
that are very, very difficult to produce different things from the land, from the animals here. And we are having a police for bringing a sustainability for all sectors, including the beekeeping as well. Mainly of uh, both seasons that we have here in the UAE, on cedar season that are starting now in Fujairah for honey harvest, and the summer season that happens on spring, starting on April, we bring bees from outside. And this is the big problem. We are trying to find different ways for introduce the local bee breeds for the country that are more resistant under our local climate. We have very singular conditions for the climate here, from the soil here, and of course, every day is a challenge. Our question is the local production. For example, honey, you can find cedar honey, for example, locally made here, local production. You can find by a price around 300 dirhams per kg. And for honeys that are in the supermarket from different countries, we can have a price five times less. This is a consequence, the, the cost of the production. Mm. This is our big, big challenge. Our cost for produce on the desert is very high. And this is the thing that we are planning, we are trying, we are doing different ways for reduce the costs and have a product with high quality and a good price for the local customers. Marianne, how are you producing these very delicate edible flowers and microgreens? Because I can't imagine they fare very well in this desert landscape. Well, you'd be surprised, really. Um, we actually have two different uh, farming techniques we use at our farm um, because we grow over 25 varieties. And yes, some are more suited to this climate, whereas others need a more protected environment for them to thrive. So on the one hand, and this is how we started, we have our indoor vertical farm. Um, so we grow in racks up to five layers high um, where we have like an, a, a hydroponic system. So it's where instead of uh, the, the plants are held in pots of soil, but then we have water that gets recirculated uh, around once or twice a day uh, with nutrients in it. So that way it is very water efficient. And because it is indoors, we can control things like temperature or humidity, for example. So we can sort of pamper our plants, as you can say, and give them what they need. And then it's also very water efficient, which, as uh, James mentioned, water scarcity is, is a big issue here in the UAE. The other uh, method we have of growing is outdoor. So we do have a, a greenhouse. So it's slightly protected in terms of we can control a bit of the temperature inside. And there we do grow in the soil and we use like precision drip irrigation, again, to reduce water usage. But these are plants, especially that need, for example, a lot more light. 
um, or that are quite well adapted to the climate here, maybe not over summer, but in, in winter. And we have a few plants that actually absolutely love the heat and the sun. Um, wow. And they do quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it is, we, we do take very good care of them. So in the greenhouse, uh, we can, uh, through certain procedures, we can prevent more disease or, or pests coming in. Um, we uh, give them, uh, we work very heavily on soil fertility uh, through organic methods so that they get the, what they need to grow. We have shade cloths, for example, and some fan system to keep them cooler. Uh, but here, yeah, water usage is, for example, a bit higher, but the energy we use is a lot less. So we really try to see what is the most sustainable way to grow each crop in terms of resource usage um, and also making sure for our chefs that we work with that we keep availability throughout the year because um, they want, don't want to go, oh, one week you have this, the next week you have that. Although there is more and more of a drive towards seasonal cooking, but some of these things we want to make sure we have them available all year round and that we can see, okay, what is the most sustainable way of growing each crop? And it's a constant learning process, Mm. um, as you can imagine. And we're always tweaking and learning and improving uh, to get better and uh, do better with the resources we have. It is fascinating to hear how you're doing that. James, is one of the hardest things with your bees, finding food for them, essentially. Do they, I mean, you know, they need nectar in order to make honey. Is that why they die out during the summer? Here, all time, we have a challenge. Only for, uh, you know, each tree is spoonful of food that the human being consumes during their life. Uh, one spoonful of food is responsibility and it is produced because the bees visit the flowers for promote something very, very special. Its name is pollination. Pollination is a transfer of pollen grains from the male part of the flower to the female part of the flower for produce pods, seeds, fruits, and so on. The most important role of the bees is produce food. Produce food first. Many crops around the world depends on the service of pollination of the bees, the pollinators, the main pollinator that we know. And the value of the, the service of the bees around the world is for producing the foods uh, on the crops is around 200 billions of dollars per year. This is the main whole of the bees. And besides this, these bees visit flowers from the natural landscapes. Here in our case in Fujara, mainly uh, acacias, the summer trees, and cedar, the zizipus that we have here. And visiting this flower for promote the biodiversity for transfer pollen grains, the genetic flow between the trees, they collect a substance which name is nectar that they transport the hive on the stomach and produce honey inside a hive and deposit it inside the cells in a comb. The honey is a secondary product. The main product is a pollination for the natural landscapes and for food production for the human being. And here we have, of course, too much difficult 
for the maintenance of the bees during the gap periods. We have two seasons in the UAE on spring, starting April until May, another one that starts on October until November. After this, we do not have more flowers, mm. mainly in our Emirate of Fujairah. And this gap period without flower, this is very difficult without flowers and mainly during the summer, the three months, June, July, August, until September for the maintenance of these bees. James Salomi there, beekeeping manager at Alteba Farms for Almaya Group in Fajera. You also heard uh, from Mary Ander Hahn, who's the founder of Marianne's Fresh Produce. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for everyone who's sending messages in about what they buy locally. Mary says, I buy cucumbers, tomatoes and blueberries. Alex says, locally produced food is always the best. However, I wonder if it can be done in a profitable, scalable and sustainable way in this part of the world. Or realistically, are these just a few mini projects? Interesting thoughts there. Thank you so much for your comments, Alex. Coming up now, though, we are going to speak to a local farmer, uh, an Emirati, who is making a commercial success of his business. His name is Rakan Ishmael Al-Gargawi. He is the founder of Wadi Al-Amadi Vegetables and Fruits Farm. I spoke to him a little bit earlier and I started by asking him, how long has he been farming here in the Emirates? This is something that's been going on for passed on from my father. Since 1996, he has started farming and as a symbol, we basically live in a desert. So dates was the only or one of the only trees that can get produced in this region. In 2021, during the COVID days, I've started something small where, you know, figs is a fruit that I used to love because when we used to go on our vacation, the countries that we used to get figs were amazing. But when we get them as an import from other countries in Dubai, they weren't tasting that good. So I said, why don't I start with that? So a lot of testing used to happen. Something new to me. I wasn't a guy who was interested into farming. So I did a lot of research, reading, you know, how can I do this more in a more sustainable way? So it came up from figs. So now started with 10 and today we have above 450 trees planted of figs in the farm. My goodness me. And can we buy your figs in the shops? Yes, not in shops. So currently we have uh, online platforms. So we have our own website, our own Instagram. We have uh, WhatsApp groups that uh, you can get into them and request because currently they are limited. There are a lot of uh, issues that we face, especially it's in a, we are in a hot country. So figs are a type of tree that requires sun, but... It shouldn't be humid. It shouldn't be hot. So there are some limitations with the quantity, but currently we are doing it on a order basis through the website and Instagram. And we currently have a shop just in front of our farm where we sell our produce there. 
I've actually just been looking on your website as well. I can see uh, the various other items that you're selling, including papaya, Emirati cherry tomatoes. You've got chilies on there as well. And also Emirati honey, which I love, considering we've just been uh, speaking to an, an, a, a, a honey farmer or a beekeeper in Fajera. You've also got dates, eggplants, zucchini. You really have got quite a, a lot on your on your website. And of course, Emirati cucumbers. I'm always curious to why the Emirates produces so many cucumbers and why they taste so good. What is it about the climate here that makes it good for cucumbers? Cucumbers is a, the type of produce that I think you just use in every type of cuisine or even food that you do from salads to main courses uh, and appetizers. I think that's where the demand comes in high. I think similarly it comes to as well as the cherry tomatoes. Yeah, of course. But looking, yeah, looking at uh, the seasonal aspect, so I have uh, around 15 greenhouses. They're all sustainably. We produce all organic vegetables and fruits. We also have outdoor farming where most of our vegetables go through uh, with the season as the season is coming up and we have already started. So a lot of, of our vegetables are going to come through uh, the coming weeks. How do you handle water sustainably? With the greenhouse uh, impact, the reduction of heat coming into or the required light that comes through the tree, that produces or that um, evaporates the water into less, less usage. So the amount of water that's being used on the tree is less comparing to the amount that's being planted outdoors. And do you feel that thanks to these sort of new technical advances that that all the farmers in the UAE are sort of learning about and, and, and you know, there's ever more clever ways of managing water and, and, and sort of robo drippers and things like that. Do you think that that means that agriculture can be a growing industry here? Definitely, definitely. If you have a small garden in your backyard, you can have a three by three meter small greenhouse with hydroponics where the water can be recycled. So the same water that's being given to the tree gets recycled back into the main tank and gets filtered and then back again when it requires to be watered for future purposes. For There is a lot of new technology coming up. There is uh, a lot of new innovative techniques and features for different types of trees to get produced in a hot weather like this country. Have you got support from the government? Because we know it is a declared aim here in the UAE to advance uh, farming, both sort of high-tech and low-tech farming. Do you get encouragement from the Ministry of of Environment? So the Ministry of Environment uh, has supported us in uh, many ways. So they provide seeds, they provide fertilizers, organic fertilizers, and they provide sometimes um, supervision. So if we have an issue that... As farmers haven't come across us before, they have engineers where they come in and they do a side visit and they recommend some type of uh, mechanism where we can solve our issues, as well as they have supported us into having. So we have a farmers group where all the farmers come up and we have like a workshop where we talk about different issues that we face and how can the government support us in improving our farming practice. 
That's Rakan Ishmael Al-Gagawi, founder of the Wadi Al-Ahmadi Vegetables and Fruits Farm. Fantastic to get him join us on the radio. Uh, please do keep your comments coming about where uh, you buy your food and whether or not you choose to buy local, whether you've noticed any particular local products here. Thank you, Steve, who says, I have to say I would buy everything local that I could if it was available. And it's not just the greenhouse emissions of the flights to get here. It's also the fact that it is fresher. Shahab says, hi, what is the website of the farmer who's on the show now? I will find that out for you. Uh, But he's with Wadi Al-Amadi Vegetables and Fruits Farm if you want to check it out online. Welcome back to the agenda. Uh, Really good to have you with us. Uh, We're going to keep you company for the next two hours. We have got a lot of tech stories off the back of uh, Jitex taking place at the World Trade Center at the moment, but we are trying to mix it up a little bit. And so for the next 10 minutes, at least, we are going to be talking about cricket because it's going to be uh, one of the five new sports at the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 2028. That is according to the International Olympic Committee, who officially ratified the decision yesterday. Now, uh, cricket isn't the only one that's going to be included. Uh, there's now going. There's also going to be baseball or softball, depending on how you describe it. Flag football, no idea what that is. Uh, lacrosse and squash. And I want to know what else you would like to see added. Obviously, you're not going to manage to get it in time for 2028. Uh, but I'd love to know what other sports you think should be included in the Olympics. Please do get in touch with us, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me, 04871 We're going to get the views of an expert, a cricketing expert and sports business consultant. Mark Archer joins me on the line right now. Mark, the last time... Cricket was played at the Olympics. I'm very proud to say that Great Britain, Britain won gold. Why do you think they've brought it back? And is it a good decision? Good to have you on the show. Yeah, good morning, Georgia. Good morning, listeners. Um, apologies if I'm sounding a bit dusty. I was in Paris at the weekend watching the Rugby World Cup quarterfinals. So I am sound more like Chris McCarty at the moment. I'm just recovering my voice after a pretty um, exhilarating weekend watching the sport. But amazing news coming out of the IOC Congress that was held in Mumbai over the weekend, where, as you rightly say, five new sports will be introduced into the 2028 Olympic programme. And you're right, flag football, we, we, can, we can touch on that in a moment, lacrosse, squash, baseball and softball, and, of course, cricket making its reappearance at the Olympic Games for the first time since 1900. You'll be... Proud uh, English English person, English woman, to know that Great Britain are the reigning Olympic cricket champions. They won that in 1900. They defeated France, not a world power in cricket, by 128 runs. And they were the only two teams actually participating in the Olympics because Netherlands and Belgium withdrew. So exciting news in the world of cricket. Um, it's now been added to the Olympic program and it will have some ramifications around the cricketing world with what that actually means. But yeah, exciting times with all those news that have come out of Mumbai at the IOC Congress over the weekend. So we briefly spoke to Robbie Greenfield a few minutes ago because he was giving us all the latest sort of sports headlines, the latest sports stories. He thought that uh, if there was an ever a sport that didn't need it, it was cricket. And he felt that the Olympics was there to sort of give sports a bit of a leg up. Would you agree with that or are you pleased to see it in the Olympics? 
Look, it's depending a little bit on what perspective um, you, you take. And, and Robbie's right. There's always been a debate about a number of sports in the Olympic program and do they contribute significantly. And I guess one of the sports that Robbie is, he's a big golf fan. We all know that. And there's a lot of argument that if your sport is part of the Olympics, it should be, and winning a gold medal should be the pinnacle of that sport. Most arguments would probably point in the direction that golf, the 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 the, the best example of, of, of achievement of golf is winning a major or winning in a Ryder Cup. Winning a gold medal in an Olympic program is probably not the, the highlight at sometimes of some of these players. The same with tennis to a degree, winning winning a tennis major. But for cricket, um, it's, it serves a couple of purposes strategically for, 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 for that. America is a market where cricket is trying to make inroads into. They're going to be hosting some matches next year in the T20 World Cup, which has been co-hosted with the West Indies. Um, and from a from a cricketing perspective, they want to go into new markets. They want exposure on TV in America. They want to get into markets like China, et cetera, with their global expansion. So cricket, um, it's, it's not a bad thing in terms of their expansion. Cricket's dominated financially by a couple of countries, India, is probably the big driver in cricket finances, but also Australia and England are powerhouses there. It's going to open up for a lot of smaller countries the opportunity to get government funding into their cricket programs. Um, there's 100 countries that participate in the ICC as members, and some of those 90 countries that don't get big amounts of financial support, they're going to get more money into that sport. That's great. And then you ask the question, why is it going to be beneficial for the Olympics? Um, what, why is it going to help Los Angeles? Well, it's going to give... Americans, it's going to give people in Los Angeles a, a glimpse at a new sport. And what does the IOC want out of it? Well, they want the eyeballs. They want the millions of the billions of people in India watching India play in a in Olympic Games. They want people in China to um, be, get exposed to it. And what that means for them is they're getting more TV, you know, moments um, in terms of live coverage. That's going to be attractive for their uh, and advertisers, attractive for their sponsors, and they're going to welcome a new audience. So it's a win-win situation for cricket, for the ICC, the International Cricket Council, of course, based in Dubai. But also the IOC see the, sees the benefits of growing another sport on, on a much more global level, which is going to be, again, beneficial for both organisations. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I remember when we were talking about why the FA decided to put the World Cup in Qatar. There was lots of talk then about opening the football market, you know, the football enthusiasm to a new market. I mean, obviously, football is already huge in the Middle East, but I think it's fair to say it's even bigger now as a consequence of, of the World Cup being held in Qatar. Now, you get a sense there that maybe the IOC, the the International Olympic Committee, are fighting to stay relevant, fighting to push their competition in front of as many people as possible, which I suppose every organisation, every sporting organisation is required to do. Yeah, you're right. Look, it's 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 in the, the sports business is basically the entertainment business and, and it's a search for eyeballs. And sometimes you have to go beyond traditional sports. I'd describe cricket as a relatively traditional sport. It's been around in the Commonwealth for, for, for over 100 odd years. We associate most of the countries that play it, you know, we, we came from the sort of Commonwealth expansion um, of the United Kingdom way back hundreds of years ago. And that's why it's, it's become globalised. But there are big markets around the world where it's not a mainstream sport, particularly the US, particularly China, um, parts of Asia. So, you know, South America as well to a degree. So it's great to grow your sport in key markets and the IOC Olympic program is the best way of achieving that. 
Um, you know, we touch on a few of the other sports. It's going to be made a massive game changer for a sport like squash, which has struggled to stay relevant. It struggles for eyeballs on TV. It struggles then uh, for sponsors. So it's a really amazing achievement that squash has got in. Flag football is going to be interesting. It's, it's basically a it's a bit like touch rugby for those people that play touch rugby. When you know, if you've got young kids that play touch rugby, boys and girls, they play flag flag rugby, where you basically play a touch version where you're going to pull a flag out. So flag football is a version of American football where you can throw the ball forward, of course, and then you you don't tackle anyone. You actually pull the flags out to to stop the play as a tackle. Amazing that baseball and softball are back in the program. They've been previously parts of the of the Olympic family. They're, they're making a return. Obviously, baseball is a massive sport, majorly baseball in, in the US, one of their top three sports. So that will obviously be, you can see why that makes sense there. And softball also comes back into the fold. So you're right. They've added different sports. On, you know, in the Olympic program, the likes of BMX. I think rock climbing is now part of it. Um, mountain biking's been in there. All sorts of sports now are making their way. It'd be interesting to see if esports. I know you talk about it regularly on your show. Whether esports at some stage will make a, a debut at one of the Olympic Games in the future. Fascinating to hear there from Mark Archer. Really good to uh, have his insights on that topic, which is that cricket is going to be one of five new sports at the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 2028. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Robbie Greenfield joins me on the line with all the latest on, amongst other topics, the Cricket World Cup. Good day to you, Robbie. Good day to you, Georgia Tolly. How are we? Uh, very well indeed. Thank you. Yeah, I escaped Jitex. That was one of the most polite greetings I've ever received on this well, I'm well, trying to. Well, I'm trying to make it up to you because at the end of last week, I accosted you about your spirit animal, and it threw us both off. And so now I'm just keeping it, <laughs> just keeping it to sport. And I understand that you see, look how devoted I am. I understand that Australia beat Sri Lanka yesterday. They did. Yes, they absolutely did. They. It was looking a bit dicey at one stage in this match, but Sri Lanka, unfortunately for them, uh, collapsed after making such a bright start to their innings. They batted first. They made 125 without loss. Nisanka and Pereira putting on 61 and 78. But then they crumbled, like I do on the golf course, Georgia. <laughs> they crumbled. They lost 10 wickets for just 84 runs. And in the end, Australia were able to sail past that total by, uh, by a margin of five wickets. They made 215 to five with plenty of overs to spare, just 35 of the 50 overs had elapsed by the time Australia crossed the winning post. And it was a must-win game for the Aussies because they'd lost to India, they'd lost to South Africa, and had they lost to Sri Lanka, I think it would have been fair to say that their cricketing, um, or at least their aspirations of reaching the Cricket World Cup semi-finals, would have been dealt a severe blow. Whereas now they're, they're kind of back in the ball game. They've still got work to do because you go, you've got big teams who are playing very well, like South Africa, like India, who are very much in the box seat to qualify for those semi-finals. New Zealand going well as well, but. Uh, Australia have played their way back into this one as we wait for another match, another intriguing fixture this. Perhaps not as intriguing because I would expect South Africa to win this one, but they're taking on the Netherlands a little bit later on today. That one getting underway at half past 12. OK, uh, cricket has officially been made an Olympic sport for 2028. I'd love to get your reaction to it as well. Good news? Yeah, look, it's, it's good news. I think it's, did cricket really need it would be my, my initial reaction. I think it's, uh, when you're looking at the Olympics, you're looking to try and help sports out. You're looking to try and give them 
a leg up to give them a platform that they badly need and uh you know, I, I kind of feel like putting cricket in the Olympics is like, you know, buying an already rich man another house. You know, uh, it's sort of uh, <laughs> cricket has been, cricket has been doing very, very well for a long time. Uh, the IPL is one of the most valuable brands in all of sport. I think it's valued at over eight billion dollars. Um, there's a massively packed, jam-packed schedule of test cricket of what we're witnessing uh, now, which is one day international cricket at the ICC Cricket World Cup. And, and we've got the T20 leagues all the different franchises. Is it good for cricket to be in the Olympics? It's not going to hurt cricket. It's definitely not going to harm cricket. Um, will it bring a, a whole new audience to the game? It's already a global game. I'm sure it'll help, but I, I just wonder, did cricket need it? It's the same as, as when golf was brought in. These global sports with their kind of pre-existing infrastructure and ecosystem, you do wonder the sort of uh, the, the, the kind of sense of having them in the Olympics and the, and the kind of real value of it. Whereas you have a sport like squash, which has been banging on the door to try and get in the Olympics for the best part of 30 years. This is a sport that has been starved of funding that is perfect for the Olympics, Georgia. Absolutely perfect. It's a great game. It's frenetic. We've seen how popular paddle has become over the last five or 10 years. Squash has kind of been waiting in the wings, just desperate to get a, a place on the grand stage, a place in the Olympic Games. And finally, they've had their prayers answered because they will also be included in the 2028 LA Olympic Games. And if you're asking me which one is, is a bigger deal, I would say it's actually a bigger deal that squash and not cricket is, uh, is, import, is included because of how much the sport needs that platform and that stage to be part of the Olympic experience. But I'd be very intrigued to hear what Mark Archer has to say on it because that man who's been on our show extra time and will be tonight as well, is, uh, it has, has obviously got a very long and a detailed knowledge of, um, of, all, of all of these sports and, and their kind of place in the pantheon, if you like. Busy man indeed. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds to fit in a little bit about international football. I'm understanding Ronaldo's been doing as well as he usually does. Yeah, I mean, he goes to Saudi Arabia, he joins Al Nasser. It doesn't stop him on the international stage. He scored another two game, two goals as Portugal. They thrashed Bosnia-Herzegovina 5-0. Ronaldo moves on to 127 international goals. He's miles ahead in the all-time international scoring charts and Portugal topped the group. Tonight sees Italy play, uh, play England. That's an interesting one. England at home there. They're leading Group C. Italy can draw level with them on 13 points if they manage to get a win at Wembley. Good stuff indeed. Looking forward to more football, of course, uh, coming up as well. Uh, England playing Italy tonight. Uh, who's going to win? <laughs> uh, look, um, I want to say England, but you never can quite tell with international qualifiers. So I'm going to play safe and I think it's going to be a draw. A draw. OK, well, Robbie, you're in luck because we're not speaking to you tomorrow. So I, will ne I won't be able to come back at you with your forecast. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much indeed for helping us with the sport uh, over the last few days. Much appreciated. And uh, of course, if you want to hear more from Mr. Robbie Greenfield, uh, tune in to Offscript. It is your drive time show on air every single weekday from five until eight. I won't try and list all the other sporting programmes that Robbie and Chris do because it's just exhausting. They're too busy at the moment. Uh, but yeah, make sure you tune in from five for more Robbie. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us. Now, I've got a question for you. Are you feeling ill at the moment? Uh, it just seems to be really going round at the moment. My husband's got such bad flu that we actually did a COVID test on him. 
And it does seem like he is not the only one. You know, it's the half-term holidays. It seems like the kids are back and they've brought back all the diseases they could possibly imagine. But what's really interesting is that no one's really talking about COVID anymore. So are we sort of right to now think of it as the same bracket as flu? Uh, Because that's kind of how I think of it. Um, You know, it's annoying, but it's rarely sort of life-threatening. Let's find out. I wanted to sort of get into the nitty-gritty of this. So I'm joined on the line now by an infectious disease expert, Professor Paul Hunter. He's from the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom. So thank you so much for joining me on Teams. My pleasure. Can, Can we stop worrying about COVID now then? Um, I don't think quite yet, but it's certainly getting that way. You're quite right. Last winter in England, at least, um, there were more deaths from influenza than there was from COVID. But we're still seeing um, uh, deaths occurring, although nowhere near as much as it was a year ago uh, or certainly two years ago. And, And people in hospital are still people are still ending up in hospital primarily because of COVID. But again, the numbers are are generally a lot lower than they were a year ago. So we're heading in the right direction. We're we're not there yet. Um, We don't know what's going to happen this winter um, for certain, uh, but it probably won't be as bad as as uh, last winter and uh, and then after this winter probably we it's something that will then gradually become just consigned to history really i think how has that happened can you give us a reminder i mean i as a sort of amateur epidemiologist i feel like i could answer yep. it but 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 just you know, like because as we all are now but yeah why is it why is it so quickly become you know something we can consign to the history books well, I mean, it's, the virus itself is going to be here forever. You know, this is a virus that's never going to go away. And I've been saying since 2020 that you know, our grandchildren's grandchildren will be catching this infection. The difference is immunity. And some of that immunity is down to the vaccine. And some of that immunity is down to uh, the fact that most of us around the world, virtually all of us around the world, have actually already had one. And most of us have had more than one COVID infection by now. And that immunity builds up so that it it's not immunity against infection doesn't last very long but immunity protection against severe disease severe enough to need to go into hospital or have oxygen therapy lasts uh, a lot longer and and i think that's what we're seeing that uh, yes infections are still probably quite common and will remain common but the impact of those infections are gradually getting less Do you think, actually, or why do we seem to get more COVID cases during winter? Well, it's not just COVID. It's pretty much every respiratory virus is more common during winter. And there there are a lot of explanations for this. and, And nobody quite knows exactly what the important explanations are. But it it's along with, you know, we're spend more time indoors. Uh, uh, in probably in um, drier indoor environments um, and we tend to go when we go out um, you know uh, in the summer and you go to uh, to a bar or whatever you often sit outside and whereas in winter you'll be huddled in and cramped indoor environments and these those are the environments that sort of spread um, these respiratory infections more commonly and I think that's that's probably the explanation. We, you don't actually need much um, to um, tip virus infections into seasonality, but uh, what we call, you know, worse in winter, 
uh, less uh, bad in summer. But it, it's it, that's the probably the the basis of the expl- of the reason. But uh, I think there's still some uncertainty about that. So what should we be doing uh, to avoid getting ill this winter, apart from the usual hand washing and I suppose vaccines still? Yeah, I think if you're certainly if you're in a risk group, uh, it is still important to have your COVID vaccine. I've had mine, um, uh, but I'm in my 60s. And and I think that's the main thing that you can do, particularly if you've if you've got another uh, medical condition that would make you more susceptible. I think if other than that, um, there's often very little chance you can you can um, you can avoid uh, large crowds. But ultimately, you know, you you will probably pick it up anyway, because this thing is so infectious. Um, If you are vulnerable uh, to severe disease, I would still continue to wear a face covering of some sort, because uh, even if you still catch the infection, there's good evidence that if you were wearing a face mask when you caught the infection, you get less ill than uh, if you weren't wearing one. So yeah, if you're uh, particularly vulnerable, but you quite, one of the issues is, you know, children at school bring infections home. We we all know that uh, if you've got children or grandchildren, that uh, they bring a lot of infections into the home. And it's very difficult. Once they're in the home, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to stop them spreading to other uh, family members. That is currently what I am fighting against. Professor Paul Hunter from the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, an infectious disease expert. Thank you so much for joining us on the agenda today. Yep, my husband is down with flu at the moment. I'm literally treating him like he's some sort of vampire and trying to stay away from him as much as possible. So fingers crossed I won't catch it. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.